Amen. You may be seated. So again, today we have a few brief scripture readings from a number of passages printed there on page 9 in your bulletin. You'll notice the theme from Proverbs 13. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. From Proverbs 30, remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. From 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, for a great work of the Spirit now in our hearts along with this word. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, we're halfway through this series I've titled Mere Humanity, especially focusing on some of our younger saints. But what I've been trying to do, one way of describing what I've been sort of trying to do in this series is I've been trying to show that what the Bible calls holiness, you guys have heard that word, I'm sure, holiness, we Christians use that. Holiness just means being devoted to God. That holiness is just restored humanness. A lot of us, I think, have this idea that to be really, really holy and devoted to God, you kind of have to get away from as much of life as possible. I'm trying to really push back against that. That holiness is just being, being fully human as God made our humanity to be. It's imaging God's glory in all that we are as human beings. I mean, it's not without reason. Jesus is called the new man, the new Adam. And what I hope you guys will more and more will all grow together in understanding is that Jesus saves our whole humanity. He, he restores our humanity in its totality. There is way more to getting saved, that wonderful evangelical phrase we use. There's a lot more to getting saved than just getting hell insurance. You know, you've got your get-out-of-hell-free card now. Jesus has come to restore our humanity. And so what I've tried to do in this series is just take 12 pieces. I'm calling them sort of 12 pieces from the game board of human life. And I, we're just trying to hear what is God's word about each of these pieces, each of these features, and then to turn from the word to the world and ask, how can we then play these pieces in the game of life in the world for the good of ourselves and others and for the glory of God? Today, we've, we've walked through five so far. Today, we've come to the sixth piece, which is the purse or the wallet or the bank account or that huge sock full of gold dust under your mattress or whatever it is, wherever you keep your money, your wealth, your material 
resources. I want to talk about money today. And I want to begin by talking about a little bit the problem of money. For Christians, money is a problem. And it's a problem because Jesus. I want to begin today with a little story that Jesus once told. And it's a very, very familiar story. And the problem with familiar stories in the Bible is that we kind of stop hearing them. But here's Jesus. One day a wealthy young man comes up to Jesus while he's teaching. This guy's really making it. He's what you want your son to be. He is succeeding in the world. And he apparently really wants to make sure that he's got his whole portfolio in place because he approaches the Lord and he's, he's, got, he, he's set financially. He's set economically. He's, just, he's, kind of on, he's cruising in that department. But he asks Jesus, he says, here's my question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? So he's been raised as a good church boy. He understands it's not enough just to have the money and the things of the world. He also wants to have eternal life. And so he asks, well, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus is very straight with him. He says, well, you keep the commandments. You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, etc. Basically, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. You know, that's the mark of people who are walking toward eternal life. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy's sharp. He just says, you know, check, ka-ching, ka-ching. I've kept all the commandments, Jesus. So what do I still lack? What's missing in my portfolio? We're told in another gospel, I'm speaking from Matthew 19 here, we're told in another gospel, Jesus looks at this young man and he loves him. He loves him. And he sized him up very well. And he says, one thing you lack, to be perfect. Now, you know, in the Bible, that's not a word that means sinless. It means to be complete, to be whole, to be the whole thing. Just this, go, sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then you come follow me. And there's a long silence. As this young man stares into the eyes of Jesus, nobody says a word. Finally, the young man hangs his head. And we're told he walks away sad because he has great possessions. And then Jesus says something that reverberates through the centuries. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And please don't ever be deceived by these silly stories that, well, there was, this, there was actually this gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and it was a small little gate, and if you were a camel, you had to get down on your knees to walk through it. That is baloney. Jesus means it is easier for a big old fat camel with a couple of humps on its back to get through the thing you use to thread the button on your shirt than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. One commentator puts it, and this actually, I think, cheapens Jesus' expression. He says it's about as easy for a Cadillac to get through a revolving door. Humanly, Jesus is saying, it's impossible. Now, this is one of Jesus' sayings about which we are often so zealous to say what he is not saying that I think we can no longer hear what he is saying. Because when we're all finished, because I can hear it already, if I, we are having a Bible school class, there'd be hands shooting up, and we'd have all kinds of qualifiers. Now, what, you know what, let's be clear what Jesus is not saying, Pastor. He is certainly not saying that we all need to go be St. Francis of Assisi, who heard this text and literally went off and sold everything he had and gave it all to the poor and became a, a you know, wandering beggar friar. He's not saying we have to be St. Francis. 
And he's certainly not saying that anybody can mandate giving to the poor because the great evil socialism. Okay. So when we're all done with all the qualifiers, I'd like you to notice the disciples' reaction to what Jesus says in Matthew 19. You know how their, what their reaction is? They hear Jesus say a camel would get through an eye of a needle quicker than a rich person get into the kingdom of God, and their response is, then Jesus, who can be saved? Sounds like we all have a problem. Because you're all going to say to me, oh, pastor, 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 you've told us and we believe it and we're into it, man. Money's not a problem. Money's just fine. Jesus doesn't have a problem with money. All Jesus has a problem with is if money has your heart. Yes. Yes, quite so, dear saints. And it does. That's why the disciples hear this about wealth and the kingdom and they say, I don't think any of us can be saved. I think we've all got a money problem. It might damn us all. And Jesus says, yes. With man, it's impossible. Only with God are all things possible. What is it about money? You know, it's not the physical thing, is it? It's not the shiny little pieces of metal. I could collect, you know, Chuck E. Cheese tokens in giant buckets in my room, and you just think I'm weird, because that's weird. No offense if you do that. It's not the pieces of metal. It's not the little pieces of green paper, no matter how many numbers you write on them, with how many zeros. It's not that, you know, piece of printout that says, you know, mathematically you have this many figures in whatever account anywhere. That's not the actual thing, is it, about money. It's the value that these things represent to us and others. It's the fact that that piece of paper will do, it has value to you and other people. That's that's what is the thing about money. But let me ask you guys to think with me for a minute. What is that value for? What do you do with money? What do you do with wealth? What possibilities does it afford to you? Why are some people so into money? Well, basically, as I thought about it this week, I think pe- people basically do two things with money and the, and the value that money represents. They basically stockpile it. We call this saving. You know, they stockpile the value through lots and lots of green paper or pieces of gold or m- numbers on the printout. They just stockpile or they spend, right? You take that value and you use it to get something. That's what people do with money, with the value that money represents. And in those two things, you can immediately see, I think, the two great aims toward which we direct our money and we direct our efforts at earning money, two big things we're after. One is security. We stockpile money because you feel better when you've got money stockpiled. The rich man there in our second verse, the rich man can ransom his life if somebody puts a gun to his head. The ransom of the rich man is his wealth. And so when life comes to you and puts a gun to your head, the reason you want money in the bank, and lots of it, please, is because it gives you a sense of security. That's what we're, that's what we're after. And the other thing we're after in the spending side, not so much the stockpiling now, but the spending is we're after pleasures. I mean, the reality is there are pleasures money can buy. There are some really things that make you like feel good when you spend money to get them. That's what we're after, security and pleasures. But I think we have to admit there's more, not just security and not just pleasures, There's another big thing, because money and what money can buy, this is also a social measuring stick, isn't it? And we should not try to, please, let's not be pious and pretend we don't see this. There is an aura of glory 
that shines from things that money can buy. Can we, can we just be real about that? That's no different if you're a Christian. There is a kind of shine. Some people call it bling, but I think it's a little bit cynical. It's not just bling. There's real glory. There's a real aura of shine when you're wearing certain things and you're driving certain things and you live in a certain neighborhood and you, you know, your, your hair is styled a certain way and you've got certain accessories, ladies or gentlemen. The reality is there's a shine. And it's more than just a shine because there's an indicator when you've got that stuff. There's an indicator there. It might be false, but it's an indicator of competency. The, the, the sense is you must have somehow, you know, remember Lee Iacocca? We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. If you're younger than 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But this idea, I, you know, there's a sense. If you see someone who's really, like, carries themselves with the trappings of wealth, they must have earned that somehow. They kind of must know what they're doing. In fact, in a lot of Christian circles, as you know, it's even a sign that God is, God is on your side, that you're being blessed by the Lord if you have some of that shine about your life. And the, the, the glory and the indication of competency, all of this gives you social power in a way the poor person does not have. The rich, those who have the glory and the, the, you know, the sort of aura of competency around, about their life, they, that gives you automatic social power. Because there's something about walking into a room when you're the best-dressed person in the room and you have the most obvious money at your disposal, you immediately turn heads. In a way, the guy in the shabby shirt absolutely does not turn anybody's head. In fact, if anybody's head is turned by this cat, it's probably because, ooh, you know, hope he doesn't sit at my table. There's just automatic influence when you carry yourself with wealth. You obviously, visibly know what you are doing, right? And so there's an old Latin phrase that says, clothes make the man. We judge people on the basis of what we can see. And so there's an immediate sense, if, you know, if, if it looks like you have made it in life, I want to talk to you. If, it, if I find out you have $5 million in the bank, I want to have coffee, I don't want your $5 million, but I'd sure like to know how to get $5 million in my bank account. And so there's that immediate social influence. The rich are obviously sources of resources. They've got stuff. It might be good to be you know, on their good side. The Bible says the rich has many friends. Why? Because people are kind of hoping you'll just shed your strength. You obviously have economic power. They're kind of hoping you shed it. This is just real. It's absolutely going on here this afternoon. And anyone who thinks it isn't is, is playing a mental game. This is just how the world works. This is how money works. And I can imagine asking, like, why is any of that a problem? What's wrong with having? What's wrong with even wanting security and pleasure and influence? Isn't that, isn't the good man? I mean, didn't we just read this? The good man lays up wealth for his grandchildren? I mean, isn't that like a good man does that? Isn't it the good man to whom the sinner's wealth is eventually going to be given? We just read that, right? Shouldn't we want flourishing? Shouldn't we want strength, economic and otherwise? Shouldn't we work for that? I mean, isn't that part of what God made us for? Are you really saying, Pastor, that, or is Jesus saying that poverty is somehow kind of virtuous? Well, that's, that's the problem of money. That's the problem of money. Now, I want to turn from that problem of money to what I'm going to call a portrait of magnanimity. Oh boy, not a word we use every day. But from the problem of money to what I will call a portrait of magnanimity. Now, that's a word we don't use, so before I define it, I'd just like you to notice what we've already been saying, when that is, there is a bigness about money. There's a bigness about it. There's a kind of greatness about money. 
lots of money. There's a kind of glory in material prosperity. You are bigger with stuff. That's just a thing. And yet there is this troubling warning throughout the scriptures that you know very well. And this is the warning. The exact moment you start to love that, the identical moment you start to love the security money brings and the pleasures money can buy and the kind of glory and power that money affords, the identical moment that hooks your heart, whether or not you have the money, because there are poor people who want the money for all because they love what money affords, and there are rich people who want money because they love what money affords. The exact minute, whether you're rich or poor, that, 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 those things that money offers, that money affords to human beings, your heart lays hold of that for one moment. Paul says here in 1 Timothy 6.10, that craving, that desire, I want security out of money. I want the pleasures money can buy. I want the power and glory that money brings. The moment that craving gets hold of your soul, the Bible warns all throughout that you are already shrinking as a person, and in fact, if you do not get a hold of that thing that has its hook in your heart, it will destroy you. Proverbs 4, Psalm 49, 20 says that man in his pomp, and the pomp there is material prosperity, man in his material prosperity, yet without understanding, is like the beast's that perish. You are the camel. You're the camel. If that gets your heart. Now, let's just, let's think about this. God made us for greatness. He did. He didn't make us to be a bunch of hangdog, you know, slinking, downcast, poor, deprived, struggling. No, he made us to be great. He made us to, to have glory. That's what humans are for. But you know very well, you read your Bibles carefully, there is a true greatness and there is a false greatness. Yes? There is a real glory and there is what the Bible calls vain glory, empty glory. And what I'm trying to get at with this word magnanimity is that true human bigness, the kind of greatness that God made us for, the kind of glory that God made us for, that real authentic human bigness, the Bible says, is greatness of soul. It is wholeness of heart. It is glory in your character, who you are from within. It is largeness of virtue. The word magna animus, magna animus, magnanimity is just largeness of spirit, is having a magnificent spirit. When you look at a great man, I mean, I've known some rich people who are great, and I've known some rich people who are not great. I've known poor people who are great, and I've known poor people who are not great. Because when you really look at, for authentic greatness, and you see a great man, what are you seeing? It, you're seeing a pillar of goodness. A man who just has character that, that is rock solid. Now, that will sometimes produce wealth, but that's the greatness. That's the real thing. Like beauty. Greatness is way beneath just what you can see. A noble woman, a great woman, you think of such a woman, she is a tower of virtue. Mary, the mother of Jesus, for example, she is immense in the human race. Not because she was wealthy, because she certainly was not, but also not because she was poor, because there are people today who glamorize poverty. Mary was immense, not because she was rich or poor, but because she was the handmaid of the Lord. 
Be it unto me according to your word, Lord God. That's a great woman. That's magnanimity. That's greatness. That's glory. One's life. Jesus again. One's life. The core of you. The thing that radiates. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, Jesus said. What does it consist in then? It consists in laying hold of what the Apostle Paul calls here in chapter 6, verse 19, that which is, what's the language? The very last two words of our text. I want the rich to lay hold of what? What is truly life? What is truly life? Now look at how Paul, in this 1 Timothy 6 text, without ever using the word magnanimity, paints a portrait of it. You'll notice, look again at the the 1 Timothy 6 text, and notice that the root of this kind of true greatness, true glory, the root of it, he says in verse Verse 6, it is godliness. The root of this kind of greatness and glory is godliness. Or another way of saying godliness is Godwardness. Because, beloved, think with me about this. What makes you a great person? What makes your life full of authentic glory? All life throughout the scriptures is rooted in God, right? God's presence is where things flourish, you just see that. I mean, God, God speaks and what happens? Life, creation. God is where the life is. God's word brings things into being. God's word brings things to the fullness of their being. That's God. He is the source of all life. You draw near to God, you will thrive. You walk away from God, you will wither. To hate God is to love death, the Bible says. The psalmist's language about God is, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's God. And so magnanimity, largeness of soul, greatness of spirit, true human glory, that's what happens in souls that are turned toward God. Like flowers just soaking up the sun. If you're going to have greatness and glory in your life that's authentic, you're, you're, you're turned toward God, just drinking in God. And, and, and this, there's, there's a few things here. One of them is just knowing, really knowing. <laughs> I mean, can we know this in the 21st century? Are, are, we, are we just too dull now? It is knowing from my inmost being, God is my source. Do you believe that, beloved? God is my source. My very being is his gift. I mean, the fact that Ben Miller is, is already a work of the Lord. My standing as his child, that my sins are forgiven and I am loved by him through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb, that standing with God, that access to him, that's his gift. The world is his gift. Everything I have ever enjoyed from the time I drew breath in the hospital till my final breath before the grave, everything I enjoy in this world is God's gift. Every good and perfect gift is from him. I brought nothing, exactly nothing into the world. Everything is from the hand of the Lord. And anything that I need right now, it is entirely his to give or his to withhold. And he is so much wiser than I am and loves me so much more than I love myself. That's what it is to have God as your source. It is, magnanimity is rooted in knowing that. But not just that God is my source. God is my sovereign. He's, he's 
The Lord is king. And that means magnanimity comes from God reigning in my heart, ruling in my heart. He is my master love. He's my king. He's my ultimate loyalty. He's my sovereign. I, I exist for him. I do not live for money. I don't live for the stuff that money can buy. It's wonderful to have money and to have things money can buy, but I, my, I exist for whom, beloved? For God. He's, uh, my existence flows like a, a river to the ocean, flows to him. It's all for him. He made me for himself. He's my chief end, as, the, as our catechism puts it, and that means that every single thing that I am and every single thing that I have is at his disposal, entirely at his disposal, not just in fact, because that's actually true in fact. You know the reality about Ben Miller is I don't actually own anything. I don't actually own anything. Everything I own, quote-unquote, God owns. So that's actually fact whether I choose to acknowledge it or not. But knowing God is my sovereign isn't just acknowledging, it isn't just that that is so. I want it to be that way. It's by choice as well as in fact that I want to use everything that God entrusts to me in these brief minutes I have under the sun for his honor, for his fame, for his purposes. That's what it means that he's my sovereign. The root of magnanimity is godliness. He's my source, he's my sovereign. Now notice how Paul says that cashes out you'll excuse the expression. Let's move from the root of godliness to the trunk of contentment. He says in verse 6, godliness with what? Godliness with contentment. Now that's great gain. That's magnanimity, the root of godliness, the trunk of contentment, because contentment grows out of this godwardness, and it's interesting to think about contentment. You know, there's something we really admire and, 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 and are attracted to in a person who is secure and satisfied. I confess I don't meet a lot of these people, but it, when you meet someone who is totally secure, they're, they're confident, they're not easily rattled, they're hard to shake, and they're satisfied, they're well-resourced, they're loving life, you know, they're not needy, not whining about their poor self all the time. They're just secure and satisfied. That's attractive. That is admirable. Now, this is the most controversial thing I'm going to say in today's message. As a child of God, you guys with me? As a child of God, that contentment, that security, that satisfaction is mine completely independent of money and possessions. That is such a wonky thing to say in the 21st North American scene. I don't even know if you heard what I just said. If you are a child of God, your security and your satisfaction is completely independent of money and possessions. You know the perfect illustration of this is who? It's Jesus. How much did Jesus have? How much money did he have? What kind of a bank account did he have? What was his 401k like? How was he doing financially? Now let me ask you this, was he secure? Has anyone ever been so secure as Jesus? Was Jesus satisfied? How about the Apostle Paul who says, you know, it's great this stuff you sent to me. I've learned I can be, I can be rolling in wealth and I can be dirt poor everywhere I am no matter what. I've learned I'm content. 
I'm just content. If I have God, and I have the basic necessities, Paul says, with food and clothing, you know, in Proverbs 30 there, you know, don't, don't give me poverty. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be tempted to steal bread. But if I have God, and I have enough food to eat, and I'm clothed, then I have everything I need for contentment. I am already content. And that, this is what it means, and this is where I'm really going with this. What that means is nothing else in life. If I have God and I have food and clothing, I'm content. I'm secure. I'm satisfied. My, my father's taking care of me. And that means that nothing else that I have or don't have, nothing else I gain or lose in this world adds anything to my contentment or takes anything away from my contentment. If I've got God and food and clothing, my basic needs are met and I have God, then I am already content. Nothing that comes beyond that adds anything to my contentment. Nothing God might take away beyond that takes anything away from my contentment. And I can imagine some of you being like, really? <laughs> are you really saying that, Pastor? Well, I don't, I'm not saying it from experience, but that is what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. Consider the alternative. You know, earlier I said we seek security through money. Can I ask you a question? And be, please be real about when you answer this. Are you more secure with $50 million in your bank account than you are with 50? I want you to think about that question. If you have $50 million in your bank account, are you any more secure than you are with $50 in your bank account? You know, objectively, aside from your feelings, objectively, the reality the Bible says over and over is the more you have, the more you're exposed. You know why the rich man... It's interesting to think about that rich man in Proverbs 13. His, the rich man's ransom, if somebody puts a gun to his head, is his wealth. But guess why someone put a gun to his head? Because of the wealth. The poor man hears no threats because he's got nothing to threaten. So the more you have, the more you're exposed. So I don't know how that security thing's really working out. And psychologically, are you more secure when you have lots of money? You know, it's interesting. The Bible does describe the rich as being at ease. But, you know, you can only really be at ease in wealth if you ignore the moths and the rust and the thieves. Because anyone who knows anything about money knows how precarious it is. You're one stock crash away from the whole doggone thing going, you know. This is why the rich are often more likely to obsess about money even than the poor. And then there's, the, you know, like death, because you're not going to take anything out of this world, not a single farthing. And what I see happen in people's lives as they keep chasing more and more security with their money is they end up in the absurdity of a funny little Indian parable that I'm going to read to you now. Mark McCannon tells this story. There's an Indian parable in which a guru had a disciple and was so pleased with the man's spiritual progress that he left him on his own. The man lived in a little mud hut. He lived simply begging for his food. Each morning after his devotions, the disciple washed his loincloth and hung it out to dry. One day he came back to discover the loincloth torn and eaten by rats. He begged the villagers for another and they gave it to him, but the rats ate that one too, so he got himself a cat. That took care of the rats, but now when he begged for his food, he had to beg for milk for the cat as well. This won't do, he thought. I'll get a cow. So he got a cow and found he had a, to beg for fodder. So he decided to till and plant the ground around his hut, but soon he found he had no time for contemplation, so he hired servants to tend his farm. But overseeing the labors became a chore, so he married to have a wife to help him with the work. After time, the disciple became the wealthiest man in the village. The guru was traveling by there and stopped in. He was shocked to see that where once stood a simple mud hut, there now loomed a palace surrounded by a vast estate worked by many servants. What is the meaning of this? He asked his disciple. You won't believe this, sir, the man replied, but there was no other way I could keep my loincloth. 
and that's like Long Island. That's your security. Well, pastor, surely, surely money adds contentment on the satisfaction side of things, because what about pleasures that money can buy? What about the social influence and the power that money can buy? Don't they increase your satisfaction? Do they now? This is where I just don't think we Christians understand the potential of contentment. Because if you're content with food and clothing and God, then what God adds beyond your food and your clothing doesn't add anything to your contentment. You know what it fuels? What it fuels is not contentment, but generosity. The third thing, the root of godliness, the trunk of contentment, and then you have the fruit of generosity. And I'm going to close with this, because this is where you really see. This is where you really see the big soul, the largeness of spirit. This is where you see human greatness and glory. It's the person who is the cheerful giver. The person who says, what God has given to me, I am eager to share. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, and I would say that's most of us in this room, charge them. Notice that there is no pride in these content rich people. There's no pride. There's no haughtiness. There's no pomp. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They're not pinning their hope on riches. They're not pinning their security or their satisfaction on uncertain riches. They could be here today and gone tomorrow. What I, would, what I want you to charge the rich to do is to pin their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich, to be large in good works. What you see here is these people, they have food and clothing and more, and that more doesn't add anything to their contentment. It just adds enjoyment of God's provisions with an open hand. I am ready to share. They are to be generous, Paul says, and ready to share. Can I give you guys a really stark challenge? And I am almost done. Here's the challenge. And only the Holy Spirit can make this penetrate. Everything God has given to you that is not necessary to feed you and your family and shelter you from the elements... All of it has been given to you to share. Let me say that again. Everything beyond what you need to feed your family and cover them from the elements, it's all been given to you to share. Now, there are wise and foolish ways to share. There are ebbs and flows in sharing. But I think for most of us, that way of thinking is not even on the economic radar. Rebecca DeYoung says, the point of owning stuff, the point of owning stuff is to use it for the sake of serving. Do you look at your paycheck that way? How much of the income we use to upgrade our own lifestyle could and should be used to meet others' needs? There's a question to think about. And you want pleasure? This is the watered life. You read the scriptures carefully about the descriptions of the godly wealthy. Those who water will be watered. I have known some of the most miserable people have so much money because they're not generous you want to have a good life full of pleasure? Learn to share. And how about social influence and power? I have social influence and power because my wealth speaks competency. It may. But you know, if you want real, authentic, Jesus way, social influence and power, there are a lot of people whose bling turns a lot of heads who will not be missed when they're gone. But I've attended packed funerals of economically pretty humble folk who were towers of generosity, who were pillars of provision and strength in their communities, who were available, available to their community. 
engaged with the real needs of real people. They were large in good works. You know what they were? They were like Jesus. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I'll even go a little bit further, and then I'm done. Whatever good you and I have not done with our goods before we die is a waste of those goods. Whatever good you and I have not done with our goods by the time we die was a waste of those goods. So what are we waiting for? As Jesus put it, freely you've received. Freely give. And only you can make this so, our Father, because our hearts love money. So work in us in Jesus' good name. Amen.